This is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories of all kinds, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan. Bob is one of our favorite features on the show, bringing us stories about his own life, love, loss, comedy, tragedy, and success. Today, Bob brings us a tragedy, the death of his father. My father's doctor called to schedule a biopsy of lung tissue that they suspected might be lung cancer. Since his lungs were in such poor condition due to his emphysema, they wanted to use surgery and come in through the back to obtain more tissue to be sure. This news finally penetrated the veneer of his indifference to his health, and I heard the anxiousness in his voice when he called for me to come up to the hotel to talk to him about it. His concern was compounded by the request to do it the very next morning. Sitting on the bed, cigarette between his fingers, he brooded about what was ahead. This was not the news he had anticipated, and he was rattled by it. He preferred a quick death rather than a lingering death from cancer. We went over the entire conversations he'd had with the surgeon to figure out what to do. Silence followed when we finished and we sat there with our own thoughts. Finally, he lifted his big head and turning to me, he said, You know, Bob, they wish you were still drinking so we could go downstairs to the bar and have a few drinks together. I was astonished that he said that. I'd been sober for over a year and I thought he supported my decision. But before I could answer him, he said, No, 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 I take that back. I like you much better when you're sober. We sat in the surgeon's office and he asked if the chief risk with an operation was that he might not recover enough to live independently. Once again, the surgeon nodded affirmatively, and my father said he would not do it. The doctor started to talk about the alternatives, like chemo or radiation, until my dad raised an open hand, No. And I'm not going to do any of that either. The surgeon paused and said he understood, but then asked why. My father leaned forward in his chair towards the doctor and pointing at this massive head of black and silver hair, he said, Do you see all this hair, doctor? I'm taking it all with me when I go. How much time do I have before I won't be able to take care of myself? The surgeon said, Well, Mr. McClellan, if you don't do anything at all, then I'd say six months or so, maybe a year. I'll take the six months, my dad said, and he thanked him for his time, and we left. Eventually, his doctors had to make arrangements for him to report to the convalescent hospital for transit and temporary duty, as my father referred to it. Conversations in here with him were about small talk or last-minute details about his funeral. His funeral instructions were clear. He promised me he'll have me cremated. I'm not a Catholic like your mother, you know, and I don't want any blessings or ceremonies. I also have a free burial, but the only place they can bury me is in the state of Washington, and I don't want to be buried up there. And it's too damn cold. Most importantly, don't waste any money on newspapers or programs. There isn't going to be anyone around who remembers me. These business matters seemed the direction that he wanted the conversation to go. I was disappointed, but I knew this would not be the time to try to mend relationships or old injuries or make apologies. My father would dismiss it, say it won't matter. He'd be dead and all will die with him. Besides, what would be the point? 
but the time to get to learn more about him was waning. I wondered how he could be so matter-of-fact about his dying. I also knew there wouldn't be no deathbed come to Jesus' awakening or a confession of guilt, sentimental display of affection or regrets from my father. He had no burden to unload and wouldn't discuss it with his children if he did. He looked like he was just waiting patiently for his name to be called. He had one more stop to make, and that was the cemetery. His life had come full circle. Once again, like on Guadalcanal, he was alone with no relief in sight. He knew, too, that he would not leave this room alive. This time, however, there'd be no great explosion or the violent perforating impact of bullets hitting his chest or head. Now it would be just a slow and quiet leak. It seemed each shallow breath that left his body would not return, and soon he would be out of life. He had no pain or need of any equipment. He just had to lie there and wait to be called. It was now just a matter of time. He faced what was ahead as if he was waiting for another landing craft to take him to another foreign island. He was calm. He was always calm and always prepared. He had that look that a young Marine needed to see from his platoon sergeant as he climbs down into a landing craft. That look came from his character, well sharpened by Marine Corps training and the weight of responsibility for his men. His mind was always clear and sharp, even when people around him were dying. Sometimes when amused or undistracted, he could make small talk. But in between his words, one says he was having another conversation in his mind. The contrast of his life in this transit station of a hospice to the one he led could not have been more extreme. On the ward, there were no men drinking, recounting stories of battle, or remembering old friends. There were no more brilliantly colored uniforms or music from the division band. There were no ceremonies or parades left to perform. The pageantry which had so marked his life in the Marine Corps was gone. No longer would his ears be assaulted by the sounds of battle or experience the terrifying uncertainty of war. Soon, everything would be still and quiet. Now he lies amidst the colorless sterility, flavorous hygiene, and the detached efficiency of preparing people for the grave. Here, he is now just a man waiting once again to die. The proud symbol he once wore on his uniform of the 1st Marine Division with the word Guadalcanal and the number was unimportant now. Now the chaos of struggle and death would be here within these walls of a building rather than in a jungle. And we're listening to Bob McClellan's story, well actually his father's, which is so inextricably bound up with his son's. And by the way, go to the McClellan Files, and there are a whole bunch of stories about both Bob and his father, and about the Marine Corps, and so much more. When we come back, more of the life of Bob McClellan and his father, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with our American stories and the McClellan Files and Bob's story of his own father's death. And I, I can't get out of my head the father being asked about chemo and radiation and just waving it off and pointing at his head and all that black hair and saying, I'm taking that with me. And you get to know the man right through that, right? And that's so often the case with character. Certain little details and actions dictate and tell you and reveal who a person is. Let's return to Bob McClellan. The sounds of dementia more than occasionally fill the hall with fear-filled cries for help. Some patients scream for help over and over, while others sat strapped in wheelchairs calling endlessly for the nurses who, undistracted, quietly continued working. The alarm on the doors would ring constantly as another patient wandered aimlessly outside, senselessly searching for home or a familiar place to return to. The help they sought seldom came as there was little that could be done for them. They had lost contact with the world around them, and their fearful pleas were based on some instinctual knowledge that they were lost and no one was going to come to find them. They were lost. They were lost in their minds as if their world was transformed from the one they knew to the one of fantasy. Fragmented memories or dark nightmares of imagined phantoms appearing quickly and disappearing like flashing lights. They sensed that something was out of order and their vision of chaos magnified their fears. They weren't crying out because of neglect, but rather from the painful unconscious knowledge of not knowing where they were or what was happening to them. Dying can be so ugly. Whether or not they could comprehend where they were, they knew they were helpless and afraid to die. My father was not afraid to die. He was calm and clear, and unlike the people in the ward, he knew what was going on, and that he had very little time left. But every day seemed to be his last, and then he would get a brief recovery. It was a tough waiting period, as the outcome of these reprieves would not be recovery, but yet another day to wait for the inevitable. The end became visible when I came to visit him, and as always, brought a pint of vodka for him. This time, however, when I opened the drawer of the bedside table, I saw that the last one I brought him was unopened. It was then that I knew the end was near. The pressure had finally gotten so great it became necessary to take a few days out of town to relax. It was not pressure from the anxiety of watching my father die, but from the exhausting, long process that it took to bring him to this moment. I tried to remember that it was important to give him all I could and take care of his last few days. I was comforted by the fact that when the end finally did arrive, I could walk away knowing that I did all I could for him and return to my life. But with the funeral services coming soon, I expected that I had further to go before peace would come and life would find its equilibrium again. It was going to be a stressful and busy time. Before leaving town, I went and I sat by my father's bed. He laid still in the bed, staring at the ceiling. He spoke sparingly. His six-foot-two-inch body had shed all of the water weight that he had carried for the last few years. His face, though pale, had recovered some of the lean skeletal structure that gave him both a handsome and fearsome look. I wanted to avoid sentiment in the conversation unless my father had something to say but I really could not let these last moments pass without expressing some feelings. I told him I had to go out of town for a few days and I wanted to talk with him before I left. 
Leaning closer to the bed to avoid raising my voice, I said, Dad, Dad, I just want you to know what a great father you are and how much I love you. I'm going to miss you very much, Dad. I'm going to miss you very much. He continued to stare at the ceiling. His lucid eyes were open and his skeletal face expressionless as he lay still. He made no response. Leaning closer, I said, Dad, Dad, did you hear what I said? He nodded and with a whisper said, yes. Is there anything you want to say to me? I asked. Looking at me, he said, like what? What do you mean, like what? Aren't you going to miss me? Don't you have anything you want to say to me? Now, how the hell am I going to miss you, Bob, if I'm dead? Jesus, is that the best you can do? Don't you want to tell me you love me or that I was a good son or something? Why? You don't know that already? That's not the point. I'd like to hear something from you. Is that what this is all about, Bob? You don't know it already, so you have to come down here right now and try to pull this out of me? What do you think you're watching, a movie? You really want to make me do this? Coming back once more to extract those feelings about me, I asked him, don't you even want to tell me you love me? Or that I was a good son? I'm ashamed as I remember this moment. In his response, you really don't know that already? Okay, forget it, I said in frustration. And with frustration and disrespect, I stood up and standing at the end of his bed, I said to my father, I'm leaving now. I've got to get out of town. I'll be back in four days. If you're here when I return, I will see you then. If not, then this is goodbye. My father lifted his arm and with a slight wave of his hand, he said, then this is goodbye. I turned and walked out of the room to my car. Two days later, he died. As I walked out to my car that night, I thought about what an SOB he was. How could he be so hard and unemotional? Yet sitting in the car after I left him, I had this nagging feeling deep down he was right. I did know it. I can't remember ever doubting it. But that night I needed some gesture of his feelings for me. I really didn't need to be told again or at any other time in my life that he loved me. He displayed it so many ways through my life, but none of those times comported to the tender scene by the bedside I had imagined. It was just missing the music and the color and the camera close-up that my weakness needed to magnify this scene and my importance. Ironically, I had already received this gift of love. At this time, I set it back because it didn't come in the right wrapping. This last conversation I had with him has stayed with me for many years. It is one of those stories that when I tell over drinks I always attracted sympathy for me and allowed others to share their disappointments about the absence of parents expressing love while they're dying. The ultimate answer to the question of why am I so unhappy? What's missing in my life? However, these were false feelings looking to isolate his lack of tenderness as an excuse for my need for validation and explain my problems in life. I should have realized that to my father, love meant romance. Telling my listener the story, I would wallow in lamentations of self-pity and try to soothe my hurt feelings for my failings in life. Wrapped tight in my victim's blanket, I became a self-centered invalid, consoling myself for the lack of hope and happiness. I'm ashamed to see myself almost pleading to hear him say something to me 
to make his death about me rather than the father who raised me, supported me, and remained a fixture in my life. Years later, I truly admitted to myself that he was right. I did know, and I really didn't need him to repeatedly tell me. My father's language to communicate his feelings was not in words, but in actions. I knew that as a child, I was simply below his radar screen, but as I grew up, I earned his respect. I would never be his peer, but his respect was how he demonstrated his affections for the people he loved. Most importantly, I learned sitting there afterwards is how self-centered I can be. Here is my father dying in front of me, and all I can think about is him saying tender words about me. And what a story, and Bob McClellan's story. Well, it's a lot of our stories, right? We want people to love us the way we want to be loved. And then we start to resent those people who do love us because it's not the way we'd like it. And any of us who've been sort of ungrateful kids do come to that conclusion at some point in time, blaming your parents who loved you, not perfectly, but their best, is loser's game because you'll have kids too one day. How the hell am I going to miss you when I'm dead? It's just, you can't beat it. It's just fantastic. And it's beautiful in its own way. I, my own mom and dad, they were, they were from a generation that didn't say I love you all the time. And I remember my last few months with my mom having the late shift and bringing her, her cigarettes, sneaking them in. And sure, her puffing away and we would listen to Frank Sinatra tapes or her favorite talk show host with a little yellow transistor radio piping in from WABC in New York and just holding her hand. I knew she loved me, though. I didn't, I didn't make a trauma of it. My mom and dad loved me. But some of my siblings and some of my peers, boy, they'd make a trauma of no trauma at all, some of them. Bob McClellan's story, so many of our stories, a beautiful story. By the way, your father and mother's stories, we'd love to hear them. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, but we're asking you, be real. That's all we ask, be real. That's what we try and do here every day. Tell your own story the way only you can tell it. The McClellan Files can be found at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. American stories and our next story well it's a great music story and we're calling this one the billion dollar quintet here's Greg Hengler with more the traveling Wilburys had a short history but a long past the creation of the rock group was a fortunate accident nicknamed the billion dollar quintet the five musical legends three of whom were in their 40s had gathered to assist a former Beatle in writing and recording what was intended as a throwaway B-side track. Tom Petty at age 38, whose career was at its peak, was by far the youngest member of the group. She's a good girl, love 
loves her mama, loves Jesus in America too. Roy Orbison, at 52, who was called the greatest singer in the world by Elvis, was the oldest. Here's Roy singing You Got It, the hit he co-wrote with future fellow Wilburys, Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty. Anything you want, you got it. And then there was former Beatle, George Harrison. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say it's all right. In 1963, a young Bob Dylan would ask future bandmate Roy Orbison to record the song he wrote, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Orbison would later regret his decision to reject this Dylan masterpiece. I'm a thinking and a wondering, walking down the road. I once loved a woman, a child I am told. I give her my heart, but she wanted my soul. But don't think twice, it's all right. Finally, there's probably the least known member of the traveling Wilburys but no less talented. Singer-songwriter and record super-producer, Jeff Lynne. Lynne co-founded the Electric Light Orchestra, or ELO, a rock band inspired by the Beatles' complex orchestral sound of the late 60s. Between 1972 and 1986, Jeff Lynne's ELO put more singles in the top 40 charts than any other band in the world. George Harrison's career was on fire in the late 1980s. His comeback album, Cloud Nine, was certified platinum in the U.S., thanks to the production work of Jeff Lynne. Then, in a pivotal moment in rock history, Warner Brothers told Harrison he needed to record a B-side track for his single, This Is Love. On the evening before the recording session, Harrison dined at a French restaurant in Los Angeles with Jeff Lynne, who had brought along Roy Orbison. With the three legends sitting together at one table, Harrison asked Orbison and Lynne to help him record the B-side. They agreed. For the sake of convenience, Lynne suggested they record the track at Bob Dylan's garage studio. Harrison telephoned Dylan, who agreed to the idea. Needing a guitar that he had left with Tom Petty, Harrison called and was pleasantly surprised Hello? that Petty also wanted to attend. Drums, please! The recording session took place on April 5th, 1988. After dining on some barbecued chicken in Dylan's backyard garden, the five musicians worked out the song's lyrics. Thankfully for us, George Harrison understood that history was being made, and so he took out his personal video recorder and began shooting. Does it say record in here, George? Is it supposed to say record in the viewfinder? Yeah. Oh, you see at the top? Oh, yeah, there it goes. Here's George Harrison. The thing about the Wilburys for me is 
if we'd have tried to plan that, or if anybody had tried to, you know, say, let's form this band and get these people in it, it would never happen. It's impossible. My guitar was at Tom Petty's house, so Tom, Jeff picked me up, we went over to Bob's, and I got the first line, just said, Bean beat up, battered round. Bean beat up and battered round. And then, wham, they just kept coming with all these lines. <laughs> and uh, there was Bob was saying, oh, what's it called, what's it about? And I finally saw behind his door this big box with a sticker on it saying, Handle with Kerr. I said, Handle with Kerr? He said, oh yeah, good. I liked the song and the way it had turned out with all these people on it so much. So I just carried it around in my pocket for ages, thinking, well, what can I do with this thing? And the only thing to do I could think of was do another nine, make an album. Here's Tom Petty. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a real good idea, because it had really been such magic doing the first track. Petty recalled how the group's lineup was finalized. We all jumped in a car to go see Roy play in Anaheim. All four of us ran into Roy's dressing room and said, We want you to be in our band, Roy. He said, That would be great. Harrison made the final proposal official by dropping to his knees and formally asking Orbison to join the band. The five men soon celebrated with a band meeting at Denny's on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Dylan proposed they call the band Roy and the Boys, but they settled on the quirky name, The Traveling Wilburys. All five men are rhythm guitarists, but there are no excessive solos, and the boys did a fantastic job at sharing the spotlight. Harrison did emerge as the chief Wilbury, and when the band returned to record the rest of their album, his video recorder was on again to capture the memories, starting with Tom Petty's arrival on day one. All in a day's work for a Wilburn. And we had like nine or ten days that we knew we could get Bob for. And uh, everybody else was relatively free. So we just said, well, let's do it. We'll just write a tune a day and do it that way. It was very exciting. We were in Dave Stewart's house. And it was a nice environment because you could kind of sit outside. It was warm and the doors were always open. So we set up in his kitchen. It wasn't soundproofed or anything. And we just put like five chairs around the kitchen and then put the microphones up. And, uh, and that's it, so all them guitar parts, you know, all them acoustic guitars are just in this kitchen. Here's Roy Orbison. We did music, that's what it was all about. There wasn't a lot of deciding of what to do, not a lot of time spent planning out anything. So we just uh, wrote the best songs that we could write and uh, sang them as best we could. There it's Laura and I got out of the car. Oh, no, she was long and tall. She was oh, long and short and fat. <laughs> I thought she was dressed to kill. Yeah, that's good. She was Out to kill. give me a thrill. She was over the hill. She was yeah. <laughs> over the hill. What's that? She was dressed to kill. She was over the hill. Here's Jeff Lynn. Just sitting around in a circle, like five of us just strumming acoustic guitars and coming up with a song. In, in like a couple of hours that was almost ready to record, you know, and then recording it like on the evening. It's pretty sort of unbelievable stuff. I looked at her eyes, 
Here's Tom Petty recording the song Last Night as the band members look on. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the billion-dollar quintet, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And to sign up for all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and uh, hit our email list and we'll get to you and let you know what we're doing here on the show. And now let's return to the billion dollar quintet, the story of the traveling Wilburys. Sometimes we'd sing the same song, you know, just to see who sounded good or if this key fits somebody. That was a lot of the fun of it. And George would kind of audition us, which could be really intimidating, you know, because, like, you know, Roy Orbison would sing the song and then they'd send you out to sing it, you know. And it was like, well, damn, that's really intimidating. Tweeter and the Monkey Man was recorded in only two takes and was notable for its many references to Bruce Springsteen's songs. Here's Harrison discussing the Dylan recording as we also hear Dylan getting feedback. Tweeting the Monkey Man was like really Tom, Petty and uh, Bob. Well, Jeff and I were there too, but we just sit around in the kitchen and he, for some reason, was talking about all this stuff which didn't make much sense to me. You know, it was that Americana kind of stuff. And we got a tape cassette and put it on and then transcribed everything they were saying. It was just fantastic watching him do it because he had like one take warming himself up and on take two he sang that tweet and the monkey man right through and that's it let's get them near the souvenir stand George Harrison and Roy Orbison first met in May 1963 when the Beatles were scheduled as the opening act for Orbison. 
What Orbison did not know at the time was that the Fab Four's second single, Please Please Me, had been written by John Lennon in an attempt to emulate Orbison. Ringo Starr would later admit, Roy Orbison was the only act that the Beatles didn't want to follow. Here's Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne discussing Roy Orbison as Roy records the Traveling Wilburys tune, Not Alone Anymore. If you're just sitting on the sofa working on a song and Roy's singing, even when he sang soft, it's such a tone, such a sound, you know, such a, a gift, really. We used to always tell him, Roy, you must be the, the best singer in the world. And he'd say, yeah. Lynn's production skills always makes a great track even better. hated the notion of the supergroup, which were popular in the 1970s. I never meant to be so bad to you. They wanted to soften the notion that they fit into this category. After all, most so-called supergroups don't exactly live up to the term. Michael Palin, one of the members of the comedy group Monty Python, was hired by Harrison to write the band's fictional biography. Palin chronicled the short story of five half-brothers who had one father, but five different mothers. Consequently, out of sheer self-amusement, all five members of the group decided to use aliases. Their real names did not appear anywhere on the album or cover. Here's Harrison and Lynn discussing the bittersweet track, Congratulations. The only Wilbury song Dylan has performed in concert. One of the most amazing things ever about the Wilburys was this holes apart thing of Roy and Bob Dylan. That's what I thought was wonderful, the best singer and the best lyricist, and both in the same group. End of the Line became the album's second single. Orbison stated at the time, I've been rediscovered by young kids who had never heard of me before the Wilburys. Walking down the street. But just four days before they shot the music video for End of the Line, and just three weeks after the album's release, Roy Orbison suffered a fatal heart attack. Although he had complained of chest pains over the previous month, mentioning the discomfort to his close friend Johnny Cash, Orbison did not take the symptoms seriously. Here's Tom Petty. You always said that I'd be back. 
out on top, and, and I'm sure he knew that. The last conversation I had with him was a couple of days before he died on the phone, and he was just so thrilled that the Wilburys had gone platinum, and he was just, isn't it great? It's great. We all felt that Roy was a real special part of the group, and it was just our ace in the hole to have that voice come in. And he was so nice, you know, and it was uh, so painful when he died. The video for End of the Line was shot inside a vintage passenger car on a moving train. Maybe somewhere down the road away. During Orbison's vocal solos, the camera focused on a framed portrait of the singer, which was perched near a weathered rocking chair that held a resting upright guitar. Orbison became the first musician since Elvis in 1977 to land two posthumous albums in the top five. And the traveling Wilburys album, Handle with Care, would also win accolades such as a Grammy and were ranked number two by Rolling Stone in the category of Best New American Band, right behind Guns N' Roses. Unfortunately, the band never lived up to the traveling aspect of their name. They never toured, not one live appearance. Here's Tom Petty, George Harrison, and Roy Orbison. The whole experience was just some of the best days of my life, really. She wrote a long letter. And I think it probably was for us all. On a short piece of paper. The thing I guess would be hardest for people to understand is what good friends we were. It really had very little to do with combining a bunch of famous people. It was a bunch of friends that just happened to be really good at making music. None of this would have happened without him. It was George's band. It was always George's band. And it was a dream he'd had for a long time. From my point of view, I just tried to preserve our relationship. I worked so hard to make sure that, you know, all the guys who were in that band and, and consequently on record and film, their friendship wasn't abused. Just to preserve our friendship, that was the underlying contribution, I think, what I was trying to do. The traveling Wilburys remain a cherished part of rock lore. The gathering of five rock legends offered a lesson. Some supergroups really can succeed, make great music and sell lots of records. They would record just two albums and release 25 songs. In its list of the best albums of the 1980s, Rolling Stone placed the Traveling Wilburys' first album at number 70. Petty's solo effort, Full Moon Fever, which was the best-selling album of his career, and an album also produced by Jeff Lynne, came in at 92. What Remains of the Traveling Wilburys is a mystique of unfulfilled possibilities, much like a rock band that does not come out for an encore, even as the fans remain standing on their feet clapping wildly and cheering at the top of their lungs. 
I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Tony Mandrich was considered the best offensive line prospect ever during his collegiate career at Michigan State. Legendary college coach Nick Saban, who was an assistant at the time at Michigan State, and who discovered Mandarich, said that he was, quote, probably the most dominant offensive lineman that I have ever been around, end quote. Mandarich entered the NFL as the highest-paid offensive lineman in league history. Then, after arriving in Titletown, USA, reality set in. Mandarich's story was immortalized by two Sports Illustrated covers, one hailing him as the Incredible Bulk, heading into the 1989 draft, and then one in 1992 calling him the NFL's incredible bust as his four-year career in Green Bay came to a halting end. Here's Mandrich to share his story. Growing up was actually fantastic for me. Um, I had a a great childhood, uh, great parents, great siblings. And ironically, although we're talking about our American stories, I am Canadian, (laughs) but I've spent most of my years, uh, now 53 years old, most of my life has been uh, spent stateside. And so growing up in Canada, to say that you played street hockey or, you know, on the road, you know, in your neighborhood was a common thing. And, you know, watching a lot of hockey and things like that, a lot of the stereotypes that Americans have, and I think just people have of Canada are true. Um, Very liberal country, uh, tons of first generation immigrants, uh, which my parents were. Parents came over in 1955 to escape communism from former Yugoslavia and to start a better life uh, for their family and, and kids. And, and that's basically what they did. So, you know, my childhood was great. Uh, it was just, a, it was in the greater Toronto area. We were a 45 minute drive from Buffalo, three hour drive from Detroit. So when it came to NFL Sundays, I, I got to see a lot of the Detroit Lions and a lot of the Buffalo Bills. Um, and then when it came to college football, we'd see a lot of the Big Ten schools on TV. But, you know, to sum up my childhood, uh, you know, I would say a very accurate phrase would be, I, I definitely didn't have everything I wanted, but I definitely had everything I needed. Uh, it was all a great experience. And then as you grow up, 
um, into your adolescent years, you start to have dreams. And I remember at age 11, which is pretty young, my oldest daughter, right? I mean, my youngest daughter right now is 21. So when I saw her at 11, it was kind of a wake up call for me because you don't realize how young of a person that is when they're that age. And to, when I think about it, it was at 11, I took out a piece of paper and wrote down what I was going to be when I grew up or what I wanted to be when I grow up. And that was to become a professional football player in the NFL and to be to become a professional photographer. You know, for me, the, these things were normal. As I grew older, I, I realized they weren't normal because not everybody did the things that I did. Not everybody took out a piece of paper and did short-term, mid-term, long-term goals. For me, it was like, I don't know why I did that. It, it seemed natural. And then, you know, and then I would, at the end of the three months for the short-term goals, if I'm not reaching those goals, the short-term goals, I need to find out why. And if I don't know why, then I need to reset my short-term goals and reset my mid-term goals. Because my long-term ones still might be the end game of making it to the NFL and then becoming a photographer or whatever. Um, I had uh, three years under my belt in Canada of high school football. So by the end of my junior year, uh, it was like, you know, now we're talking 1982, 1983. There wasn't very many American colleges coming up to Canada to recruit potential football players. Yes, there was for hockey, but not so much for football because, you know, high school football and college football and pro football, uh, those pinnacles are all stateside. If you really want to be honest, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. If you want to if you if your football is your dream, you got to go stateside. If hockey's your dream, you know, hope you're born in Canada. So it's 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 interesting, and um, I knew that after that third year, uh, both my brother and I knew that we needed to make some kind of a decision that was gonna help me get exposure and some American coaching. And Ohio at that time, where I ended up going for my senior year of high school. You know, Ohio was one of the, what they called the big three, one of the big three states for high school football. It was Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida were the three biggest kind of states. So my brother was going to Kent State University at the time in Ohio, in Kent, Ohio. And we were kicking around the idea of me coming down there for my senior year, uh, living with him, and he was going into a senior year of college and I was going I would be going into my senior year of high school and for the really the sole purpose of uh, getting exposure and getting some American coaching to you know become a better football player you know we talked about it with my parents and you know they they were like if that's what you really really want to do and they knew i wanted to i'd been it was my whole life it was uh that's all i talked about and, and you know my brother you know huge kudos to him for you know taking a sacrifice of bringing on your little brother who's in senior in high school and you're and he's a big man on campus as a football player because he was having a, a very good career ended up getting drafted in the first round in the canadian football league so you know he he wanted what was for the greater good um, of his younger brother and kent roosevelt high school had 
four or five athletes that were being recruited for full scholarships to Division One schools. So that was great for me because that would bring those scouts to our games and then hopefully, then it was up to me. Then it was, now you need to get yourself noticed by playing above and beyond what you think you can play. And when we continue more of the life of Tony Mandarich in his own words, here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue here with Our American Story and the story of Tony Mandarich, who went from being one of the all-time great draft picks to, well, bust town. And his life story, well, it's instructive on so many levels and so compelling. Let's return to Tony Mandarich in his own words about his own American story. Pieces fell into place and I ended up getting a scholarship offered at Michigan State. Uh, Nick Saban was the was a defensive back coach at Michigan State at the time, and he and Ohio was his area. So when you know, after several meetings with with Coach Saban, when I was being recruited out of Kent Roosevelt, I ended up signing with uh, Michigan State, and that was uh, their offensive line was uh, juniors going into their senior year, most of their starters. So coming in as a freshman, the chances of starting are pretty low. Um, but if you get a year of experience under your belt by getting redshirted by the second year, you know, with all those guys graduating, the job's up for anybody, all those jobs. So that was like a major decision for me on going there. Nick was a major decision, um, the way he was, the way he was straightforward. There was no BS. There was no salesmanship in it. There was no sliminess about it. There was no, it was all straightforward this is what we got, this is what we can do for you, and this can potentially be the result if you put the work in. And I understand that language. And then, you know, the head coach was George Perlis, who, you know, was a four-time Super Bowl winner as a defensive coordinator at Pittsburgh in the 70s. So that was a major decision because of George. Um, I was like, if I want to get to that level, here's a guy that's got four Super Bowl rings recently. And he's going to be able to call a spade a spade and say, look, Tony, you just ain't got it. You just don't have what it takes. And, you know, and there's nothing you can do as far as working at it that will make it better because you just don't have the athletic ability. You know, he's the type of guy that would say that to you. And he wouldn't say it to you in a malicious way. He'd say it to you in an honest way. And if he did think you had ability, he'd say, you know what? You do have ability, but you have a lot of work to do. So, you know, you, you get there for camp, and once you got through camp, um, you know, you pick a roommate, and I had a great roommate, a uh, great guy, still, you know, still keep in contact with him, John Buddy. And so I kind of did what I did when I was 11. I pulled out that piece of paper and started writing the goals for the next five, four to five years. And, 
you know, I wanted to become a starter. Uh, then I wanted to become all Big Ten. Then I wanted to become all American. And then I wanted to be the first player taken in the draft. And my roommate, whose brother at the time was playing for the Kansas City Chiefs, um, and his dad had played for the Kansas City Chiefs, and I mean, iconic family as far as football in Kansas City, and just phenomenal people. He was like, What do you know? What do you writing or what are you doing i said just writing my goals down and i only known this guy for two three weeks he wanted to read them so usually that's something i would not share with anybody um so i let him read them and and you could see his face expression change <laughs> as he got to the latter part of the list because that's where it was like become the first player taken become all american then first player taken in the draft and um he was like first player taken in the draft he's like there's only one a year and i said i know i said why not it be me and you know that phrase of why not me became a very common phrase in my life in my head in my vocabulary uh, if you will so you know every decision i made i would ask myself you know is this get me closer to my goal or is this a distraction um, but I was very careful on the decisions I made. And then if I saw like, uh, oh, how would I describe it? An unstable crowd of people. Um, I, I had a choice to say, you know what? This is going to escalate probably at some point tonight. And do I really want to be around this? And chance losing my scholarship and by getting involved with, you know, my ego not backing down from somebody because I, I might have more to lose than they do. You know, the five years I was at Michigan State, I chose to use steroids. Um, not the best decision in the world. Uh, it was against NCAA rules, yet I still chose to use them because my gut feeling was that to make it to the next level at my position, uh, you pretty much have to use steroids, and that's not true. Although I believed it. Um, that was something that, a topic that I would not want to discuss with teammates or anybody because I knew it was wrong. Um, and I thought it through, and I thought about the worst potential thing that could happen, and I was like, no, I'm still willing to pay the consequence if that happens because I felt that if I didn't do it, I wouldn't be giving it my all. You know, and, and did I cheat on drug tests? Yes, I did in college to pass drug tests. You know, I was introduced to it um, by my brother. Um, you know, I thought about it for months. And then, and that's where that desire to become the greatest outweighed the desire of getting caught. There was obviously suspicions, but then there was obviously phrases like yeah but do you see how he works out yeah but do you see that he's here before other people work out and then he does the workout that is mandatory and then goes above and beyond and does his own workout you know yeah do you see that he stays here later than when everybody when they leave because he's you know doing film work or trying to get better at something so you know if steroids were the only thing that had made me an all-american 
uh, all Big Ten lineman of the year twice, you know, all American twice, uh, you know, finishing in the running for the Outland Trophy, finishing in the running for the Heisman Trophy, um, being drafted second overall. If steroids were the only factor, then wouldn't most people have that kind of result? And I think there's a certain, you know, naiveness in society that you just take them and stuff happens. <laughs> well, you can take them and do nothing and nothing will happen. Um, you have to do the work. You have to do the work regardless whether you're taking them or not. You have to do the work and you have to do it at a level that's higher than you ever thought you could do it. And you have to do it day in and day out. And there's not many people that are willing to do that type of work in society for any career. Green Bay Packers will make it official. First round, tackle Tony Mandarich, Michigan State. Next there up, Detroit Lions. There was no Lions. doubt about that one. Well, when I, you know, when I left college, I had stopped taking the steroids because I knew the NFL's testing system was uh, much more sophisticated than college. And and there was enough rumors going around about the steroids in my name that I was like, you know what, I need to disassociate myself with that and kind of get away from it. So I did, but almost immediately within a week, I had kind of, you know, filled that void with, you know, painkillers. I was like, all of a sudden painkillers became, I noticed when I took painkillers, a lot of the problems weren't as big as they were before I would swallow those seven or eight painkillers. And the alcohol came into play fairly heavily when it was difficult to get the prescriptions because the demand for the prescription was, you know, you can't fill a narcotic too early. So then you try to get multiple doctors writing multiple scripts to different pharmacies. And, and it becomes a full-time job. <laughs> you know, it consumes your life. You know, it was... Um, before I got sober, uh, and even going into the last three years of my drinking and drugging, I had been kicked out of Green Bay in '92. I didn't get sober till I was in March, till March 23rd of '95. And after leaving Green Bay, I thought it can't get worse. And you've been listening to Tony Mandarich, and boy, this is real and this is raw. And you're thinking, my goodness, how could a guy have blown it? How could he have made that decision? But folks, we've all been there. And so many of us in our lives, friends, families, even, let's face it, we all have done it, done some things we shouldn't have done, and boy, did Mandarich pay a price. But when we come back, you're going to hear a flip side of this story, a redemptive side of this story, a remarkable story, uh, and it's Tony Mandarich's. And by the way, again, share your stories with us about local heroes, local legends, and the truth, too, about everything and about yourself. We love real stories. None is more real than this one. Fame, fortune, dreams, and breaking the rules to achieve them and the consequences of such things. Tony Mandarich's real-life story, a beautiful and redemptive story you'll hear when we continue here on Our American Story. ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. You're listening to Tony Mandrich. And my goodness, you've heard the story of how he got into the NFL, into the Green Bay Packers, and in the end, well, he had to stop doing the steroids. He knew he'd get busted. And what he replaced it with was opioids and ultimately alcohol. And boy, there's a lot of pain involved in the NFL, especially training and training through the pain. And so now he was an addict of a different sort. Let's return to Tony Mandarich and his story. After leaving Green Bay, I thought it can't get worse. And then two months later, my brother had passed away from terminal skin cancer. And nine to 12 months later, after my brother passes away, my parents get divorced after you know 40 plus years of marriage. After everything they've gone through, escaping from communist countries, um, coming to Canada with no money and not knowing how to speak English and making it. That foundation was gone. And your hero and your mentor, my brother, was gone. And I was, I guess it'd be an understatement to say that I felt like an epic fail um, was right there in front of me. And, you know, things kept getting worse. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to stop saying things can't get worse because every time I say it, something bad happens. But it, it, it stayed bad for another year. And then, you know, what changed it for me was, you know, there was a conversation with a good friend of mine that had, was kind of like the final catalyst that made me make a decision on um, putting myself in treatment. But really boiling it down to what it really was, it was emotional pain. Uh, it was the uh, the pain of guilt, the pain of shame, uh, the pain of letting people down, um, all those things uh, had become greater than the desire to get high. It, it was consuming the desire to get high. It had overwhelmed that. You know, getting high at one time was a solution and it felt good. But at some point, that solution became the problem. And then you get yourself in a situation where you know you can't live with it and you can't live without it. And that's a tough one because it's a catch-22 and how do, where do I go from here? And, and you're a hamster on a hamster wheel. And all I needed then was that catalyst of that friend of mine reminding me that if you don't change what you're doing, you're going to die. And I was ready to hear it, and I was like, okay, what can we do about it? Because everything I've tried and every way I've tried to stop has failed. Um, and I'm not sure that it's in it for me. I'm not sure that I'm supposed to get sober. And I never, ever was mad at God. I believed God the whole, in, in God the whole time. Uh, I was never mad at God. Why, you know, why me? I didn't, I never... Internally, I never played a victim. Poor, pitiful me. It was like, no, you're, call a spade a spade. Even when I was messed up, I was like, you call a spade a spade. Say what it is. You're a drug addict. I went into treatment in a treatment center in Detroit. You know, I always remember day five and day 11 out of the 17 days are the two days I remember the most because they were the most impactful. Day five, we had a meeting with a counselor with like eight patients that were inpatient, me being one of them. And she said, before we start the meeting, 
She said, I just want you all to take into consideration that your best thinking and your best plans in life got you here. And that was a Louisville slugger hitting me in the face. I was like, wow, she's right. And at that time, every decision I made in my life brought me to that moment sitting in that treatment center outside of Detroit. And I thought, God, I could have picked California or something nice. You know, I'm here in Detroit, <laughs> you know. And uh, and then at day, day 11, um, I started laughing again. And I didn't think that that would happen. Uh, not really in a genuine fashion. I, I thought that the fun was pretty much over for the most part. But I'd rather live a boring, sober life was better than living a miserable drinking and drugging life. I started laughing again just from us patients sharing stories amongst each other and some of the nonsense that we had done. And you could relate to the guy that worked for the municipality that was running a backhoe digging ditches in Detroit. You could totally relate to what he was saying and here I was a pro football player. And I understood exactly what he was saying, and I understood exactly about his craving of he couldn't wait to get off of work and get home and, you know, pop some pills and drink some alcohol or get to the bar or whatever. The, I could relate. And there was politicians in there. There was tall people, short people, fat people, skinny people, men, women, black, white, Asian, any culture you could think. It, the disease did not discriminate. It, it took people's lives. But we all shared a very, very uh, common thing, and it was the majority of the people's stories we could relate to. You take away a few things that have to do with uh, a job circumstance or whatever, or what role they played in their, their community or society, and you remove that, 80% of the rest of that person you can relate to 100%. Uh, and feel their pain and feel their relief and feel everything that they've gone through and you're like gosh there's you mean there's other people out there that feel this way and have gone through this um, and are going through this uh, because I thought I was unique and I was the only one when we would laugh at that stuff and I remember on day 11 sitting on my on my bed in the treatment center and my stomach was hurting from laughing and that was the first that was probably the first time in 10 years that my stomach had hurt from laughing and I thought it, you know total opposite of what I thought would ever happen I forgot all about that feeling of what that felt like and, I, and then my next thought was, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what's happening here, but whatever it is, I'm digging my nails into it and I'm not letting go. And then six, seven days later, I had uh, left treatment. It was a 30 day program. I stayed 17. Um, I was paying out of pocket and I was running out of money. And, uh, you know, they said, you know, we want you to stay 30. And I said, well, if you're willing to pick up the tab, I'll stay 30. And of course, you know, they're running a business too. Um, and I understand. And, and, I, and I was like, uh, you know, I feel that I get it. I get it. It's pretty crystal clear. And, um, and I'm sure that 
a lot of people say that to you guys and then two days later they're back out using i said but i i get it and i know it's only been 17 days but these instructions that you're that you've given me for when i do leave to do these things i've already started making calls to do these things and preparing you know when they did the statistics of x amount of people percentages will stay sober for you know one week or less after they leave treatment and 30 days and less six months less and a year or less um were staggering and and then you know it's like less than one percent of the people will stay sober the rest of their life and you've been listening to tony mandarich and my goodness the pain the guilt and the shame were overwhelming and overwhelmed the desire to get high. Tony Mandarich was ready to change his life. And we know people in this struggle right now. You know them in your family. And my goodness, this gives anyone hope in a tough situation. When we come back, we're going to continue hearing from Tony Mandarich. And we thank him right now. And I'll remind myself to do this through the piece. That it takes a lot of guts to come out and, and just really lay your life out on the line. For everyone to hear it and see it so just thanks to tony for for doing that and when we come back we're going to continue his story tony mandarich's remarkable story here on our american stories we continue with our American stories and Tony Mandarich's story let's pick up where we last left off when they did the statistics of X amount of people percentages will stay sober were staggering and you know it's like less than 1% of the people will stay sober the rest of their life and for me that inner voice said why not me I mean why not why not me be the one that does that? They need they need to fill a percentage, so I'll fill that percent. And um, and I've you know been sober ever since. I think in the first five years I was well, I know the first five years I was sober, I averaged a minimum of a meeting a day, um, a twelve step meeting. If and there were some days I'd go to two. Um, and it wasn't like. I'd go to them because I felt like I was going to drink that day. It was like I was going to them to grow as a person, uh, even sober. You know, you don't become a saint just because you get sober. Um, And when I left treatment, I had no intention, zero intention of going back to play. I was so happy to be sober because I thought that was impossible. I was so happy to be sober and actually laughing again. But man, when fall time hit and that weather hit and it was football weather, I was like, oh man, it's like, <laughs> I should be, I'm still young enough, I, sh- I could still play. And uh, and that desire started to come back and I started working out again and, you know, no you know, steroids, no nothing and was getting stronger and everything was falling into place and I thought, you know, I could 
try to make some rights out of the wrongs that I had done. Um, there were some wrongs that I had done that were just not capable of making right because they were, they were just so wrong and damaging. But I thought, it, at least go make an attempt to go back if somebody even gives you a chance and kind of keep your mouth shut, earn your, earn your money for a change and give that organization, whichever organization that may be, everything you've got, leave nothing on the plate. And um, I was lucky enough to get that chance with Indy, and and I had made crystal clear with them that that they knew the whole story, and I told them everything. I told them the truth, and I said, "So really, what you're getting is damaged goods, and you're taking a chance. And why should a team take a chance on me?" Um, and I thought, you know. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, why should a team take a chance on me? Uh, because chances are I wouldn't. Because I knew once you, I get a chance, now I have a chance to make it. Just be, and just because they sign you doesn't mean you make it. But it's a step closer. And I know that if sobriety was impossible, and it happened, and I'm happy, that football was a detail because I already knew how to get there. I just had to do it without the steroids. And I knew that was possible. I knew the training techniques. I knew the fundamentals. I knew the foot speed thing. I've been doing it my whole life. And I just had to start catching up because I was three years out of the league. And even at 28 years old, you're starting to get on the middle to latter part of a career. Um, But I had played four and then been out three and you know abusing my body with chemicals so uh and and you know at the end of three years of indie it was time to retire because my shoulder had just took a beating going into it i looked at more of it like just kind of make some amends quiet amends make some things right that were wrong slay some internal demons and prove to yourself you can play without the use of steroids and those things happened and but the in the bigger scheme of things and looking at the story and my whole story that is a crucial crucial element to the story that confirms and reiterates and uh that uh you know sobriety works and do things the right way and you don't even have to be have a drug problem or alcohol just do things the right way the first time so you don't have to go back if you ever get the opportunity to go back in anything, in school, anything, there's a much easier way to live. So when I had retired in 1998 from Indianapolis because of my shoulder injury, I kind of took, well, I, I was going to, for, I forced myself to take a month off of really not doing anything or looking for any kind of a job and just to kind of, you know, deprogram and just kind of take a breath because it seemed like it had been go, go, go since I walked into that treatment center. And, you know, that lasted about a week. And then I just pulled out a piece of paper (laughs) and asked myself if I could be anywhere, live anywhere, and do anything, where would it be and what would it be? The answers were either Southern California, Arizona, or Nevada. And uh, so really the answer on paper was 
to move to Arizona and to become a professional photographer, which to me means you're that's what you're doing to make a living. And and that's what I did. And uh, you know, you go from a a multiple six-figure salary you leave that multiple six-figure salary and you make $38,000 your next year doing what you love. And a lot of people would, will say that that's not the greatest move in the world. But the value of being able to sleep at night carried more value than the paycheck. And don't get me wrong, uh, paycheck is good. And to be able to sleep at night is good. Uh, but if it comes down to one or the other, I'd rather be able to sleep at night. But really, that's what I did. I followed what I loved to do. And then it was like, figure out a way to monetize it. And that's what I did. And there's been you know, great years of revenue, and there's been not so great years of revenue with photography. But it's been in total relation to how much effort is put in by me. So, you know, it's fundamentals and it makes me think of people like Nick Saban and people like George Perlis and these coaches that have been not just those two coaches but many more that I haven't even mentioned that have influenced the rest of my life via the football field because of how they taught and at that time when we were on the football field little did we know that they were not only teaching us about football, but they were teaching us about life. I know that they knew it, but when you're you know, 19, 20 years old and you're bulletproof, it's, no, this is football coaching. And, um, and, that's, and they were football coaching, but you take those fundamentals and you can apply them to anything and you'll have success if you execute them. Um, that's why I think it's so important to share like that's everybody has a story and I think it's one of the most valuable things a person has is their story and a lot of people will say their story is insignificant and that's a bunch of BS because everybody has a story and everybody's story matters because the biggest key is the person that you're sharing or the people that you're sharing your story with if they can relate to your story and I know they will you know, okay, they won't be able to relate to going to football camp for the most of, most part. 99% of them won't. But they'll be able to relate to 99% of the rest of my story because pain is pain. You know, emotional pain is emotional pain. Whether you're, you know, uh, mom raising kids at home, which is probably the toughest job in the world, to construction worker, a pro athlete, uh, engineer, an architect, doctor, it doesn't matter what it is. Pain is pain, and I used to think I was unique, <laughs> which almost killed me, and that, that my pain um, would be unique or was greater than other people's pain until I got sober. And then I realized, you know what? You're no different than anybody. Everybody has hardships, and um, not everybody pulls through hardships. So what's your, what's your decision? Do you want to pull through this? If you do, what's your motivation? And if you don't want to pull through this and kind of want to lay low and you know crawl in a cave and kind of hide and uh, live that kind of a life, that's an option too. Um, but that's not the way I was wired. Um, I was wired to try to 
make as much right of the wrongs that I had done and continue that, you know, the rest of your life. And what a story you've just heard. And we're talking about Tony Mandarich's story. His first five years, he was going to at least a meeting a day, he said, during rehab. He was trying to become a better person. And he had zero intention of going back to play professional football. And you don't know how hard that is, folks, to leave the league and then come back. But he did it, and he actually made his way into the starting lineup at the Indianapolis Colts. And a fact that wasn't revealed here that I happen to know personally from having read a lot about Tony Mandarich is during that ending part of that third season, he had acute shoulder pain. And there was a remedy. He could have taken painkillers. But he went up to his boss and he said, I've got to quit because my life is more important than football. And he did it. And not an easy call. And then he goes on to his new passion. And that, of course, was photography. And a huge cut in pay. But again, living the life he wanted to live. And by the way, what a remarkable thing the Indianapolis Colts did. You're getting damaged goods, he said to them. And you're going to have to take a chance on me. And in the end, we've got to take a chance on people, folks. And that's the heart of the country. And there are second chances. And there are third chances. And there is redemption. There's always the possibility for it. Tony Mandarich's story, a remarkable American story. Even though he was born in Canada, this was indeed an American story here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.